It's Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Second reading comes from 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8 to 13, and that's found at the top of page 1057. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. Also, Andrew wanted me just to read again from the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In the Lion King movie by Disney, Simba is a young lion who flees from his home because of his devious, power-hungry uncle, Scar, who conspires to kill Simba's dad and convinces Simba, who's next in line to take the throne, that it's his fault. Simba is at the bottom of the barrel, you could say. He's lost his hero dad. He's convinced that it's his fault. He's alone. He's far from home. And as he passes out in the desert, facing imminent death, he is saved by two happy-go-lucky animals named Timon and Pumbaa. Simba is grieving and depressed. But he is lifted up 
from his sorrow by these two new friends, particularly when they teach them teach him their attitude towards life, characterized by the song, Hakuna Matata, which is Swahili for there are no troubles. I won't sing it for you, but you can join in if you like. You know, it goes, Hakuna Matata. What a wonderful phrase. Hakuna Matata. Ain't no passing craze. It means no worries for the rest of your... It's our problem-free philosophy. Hakuna Matata. In Sorrow and Loss, Simba learns what our culture often tells us. There are no worries. Just live life and move on. Find comfort in some good friends and don't look at the difficult things in life. Just be carefree. That's certainly one way to find comfort in our mourning and sorrow. We don't have to sing this song to live this attitude in our lives. We can come find comfort in our addictions, in our distractions, in our entertainment, in our food, Maybe we might even find comfort in our therapists. But do these coping strategies actually address the root cause of our mourning? That's the question we want to look at today. In our series, The Beatitudes, called True Greatness, we've been looking at how Jesus' upside-down pronouncements of what it means to live a great life in God's kingdom is like. Last week, we looked at the first Beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And today we're going to look at the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And through this pronouncement, we discover that true mourning, or true comfort from mourning in this world, isn't a comfort that comes from coping or from running from those things that bring us sorrow and pain. So we're going to look at this in three steps. The reason for mourning our comfort of mourning, and the comfort of the mourning one. The reason for mourning, the comfort of mourning, and the comfort of the mourning one. There's something here with Jesus' second beatitude. If you were to ask someone who has heard of the beatitudes, this particular one probably is the most easily remembered. Perhaps it's so well known because mourning is an unfortunate reality in our lives. That's what we're reminded of, if you didn't hear of it yet, about an assault that happened outside this church this week of a little girl. While it's easily remembered, I don't know if it's quite as readily sought after as Jesus seems to put here. Few of us go around looking to be people of sorrow and mourning, but so sorrow and mourning always seem to find us, don't they? We mourn the loss of past relationships. We feel the pains of this Mourning, particularly in the first year of withouts. This is the first Christmas without. This is the first birthday without. This is the first summer without. Loss of past relationships. But we also feel the pain of losing potential relationships. The one that got away. The one that never came. Perhaps the one that we can't have. We move, when we move to a new city, we mourn the loss of familiarity and routines. And when the age of our bodies begins to fail us, we mourn the loss of function. These are all realities that we face in life. And here we have Jesus telling 
those who mourn. Blessed are you when you mourn, for you will be comforted. And the Greek rendition of this beatitude makes the pronouncement even more mysterious. It may better be translated as blessed are those who continue to mourn, because the verb for mourning is in the present participle, which suggests a continuous action. So Jesus is saying, you're blessed if you're continuing to mourn. If you're like me, you read this and you're like, really? Really, Jesus? Are you serious? What are you talking about here? Mourning loss sucks. Can you imagine Jesus showing up at the scene of a mass shooting and people are crying. Parents are trying to find their children and Jesus stands up and says, you're blessed in your mourning. You're going to be comforted. Or Jesus shows up at an immigration detention center when the parents are being deported and the children are remaining and Jesus says, don't worry. It's okay. You're going to be comforted. It would seem that Jesus' pronouncement of comfort in mourning may seem glib, disrespectful, may unrealistic. So perhaps the reason for this particular beatitude, the reason for mourning, is different from what we might initially expect. And it's not that God doesn't lift us up when we experience the fog of sadness. And it's not that midnight, the midnight of mourning, doesn't eventually dissipate when the dawn of a new day arrives. But if you've been around the Christian faith long enough, you'll have by no means heard scriptures shared by loved ones with good intention, but sometimes they land like an empty Hallmark card sitting on a drugstore shelf. They don't quite seem to hit it. And we've heard verses, and we sang them this morning. He's turned my mourning into dancing, as the psalmist in Psalm 30 says. Or the prophet Isaiah says, to, the Lord will comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. And Jesus even says to his disciples, Verily I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. These verses are true. They're found in Scripture. But they don't often seem to connect with what we're feeling in the midst of grief. So where is this comfort that Jesus is talking about? God is a God of comfort and love we understand, as he's revealed in Scripture. But in light of the world we live in, God's comfort and love often aren't as apparent as we hope. In fact, for many skeptics, that's the reason why it's hard to believe in the God of Scriptures. Why would a good God allow sadness and mourning in this world? And if God is so powerful, and if he really loves me, why didn't he stop this from happening? Those are real questions. But here's the thing. We think that the reason for our mourning is the loss. We think that the antidote to mourning is happiness. But God says the antidote to mourning is something else beyond our circumstances and control. We find that the antidote to mourning is repentance. If you read the context of these verses we just read a few moments ago, I think they're back up on the screen, you'll discover the reason for mourning. The psalmist is looking forward to a day when God's anger over Israel's sin will be satisfied. The, the, the grief that Isaiah speaks of is the grief of Israel's rebellion against God. The grief of the disciples that Jesus speaks of will turn to joy when they are gifted with the presence of the Holy Spirit when he goes to the cross and rises again. 
The Christian story is one that upholds the fundamental cause of grief and suffering in our world is not our desires, as Buddhists might believe. The cause of grief and suffering in the world arises from our sin. And sin is this inclination of humanity to live our lives independently of a good and loving God. Sin is what says, I want to call the shots for my life, God. And that twists everything out of shape. The reason for our mourning is not just our loss and pain in this life. The reason for mourning is what's behind our loss and pain in this life. Death exists in this world as a result of sin, the sin of humans, cutting ourselves off from the source of life. Pain in this world is a result of sin and humans straining against our God-given purpose in creation. Grief is an uncomfortable symptom of this world affected by the fall. So from where does our comfort come? In the letter to the Corinthians, Paul addresses a source of grief in the Corinthian church. He's challenging the Corinthian church for their abandonment of the gospel because they've rejected Paul and his teaching in favor of these false teachers. And what are these false teachers saying? They're saying, Paul isn't a real apostle because he has physical suffering, because a real apostle wouldn't experience suffering. They rejected his teaching and were living lives of lavish lives of sexual immorality and social snobbery. The wealthy people in the church were, uh, were excluding people from the communion meal by eating up the entire meal before the poorer ones could arrive at the meal. Paul was mourning over a broken relationship with this church that he had started in Corinth. Paul was rejected by their spurning of him, and Paul was disappointed that they weren't living lives in, light, in, light, in line with the gospel of Jesus. But in his grief, he doesn't turn and run. He doesn't medicate. Instead, he sends a letter to them. It's a letter between, sent between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, which we don't have a record of, but he's referring to that letter. And he's challenging them on these issues. And the Corinthian church is at first hurt. They're sad because of the truth of Paul's charges. But the Corinthian church responds to his charges with conviction and so, with sorrow. And the sorrow leads to repentance, as he says in verse 9. Paul distinguishes here between bad sorrow and good sorrow, what he refers to as worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow brings death, brings death to relationships, brings death to a flourishing life, brings death to hope in our lives. But godly sorrow leads to repentance that leads to life and salvation, as he says in verse 10. What is repentance? Repentance is acknowledging that something is wrong with us and something is wrong with our world and it's a turning to God who is the giver of life and the giver of relationships. The Corinthian church realizes that their actions aren't in line with this relationship with God who's the one that brings greatest comfort in life. Paul says in verse 11, how do we know when we're experiencing godly sorrow and world, or worldly sorrow. He says in verse 11 that godly sorrow produces earnestness. And the Greek word for earnestness indicates a swift and decisive action. In the case of the Corinthian church, their mourning led to a swift and decisive action of repentance and restored relationship. They acknowledged their wrong. And Paul writes in verse 13, describing their restored relationship with God. 
the restored relationship between Paul and the church, and even the comfort of seeing Titus, their young leader, and his anxiety being relieved. So, the example of Paul and the Corinthian church, in that example, we see the possibility of godly mourning that leads to true comfort. Martin Lloyd-Jones is an Anglican pastor who writes on this kind of godly and good mourning. He describes who is one that mourns. They are sorrowful, but not miserable. They are sorrowful, but not morose. They are serious, but not solemn. Sober-minded, but not sullen. Grave, but never cold or prohibitive. There is with their gravity a warmth and and attraction. This person is always serious, but does not have the effect of seriousness. He continues on saying that their outlook is always serious because of the views that there is sin in this world and brokenness and its effects. But there's also joy because of the truth of what Jesus has done for us. So the Christian is neither overly sad, walking around that we should be sad and serious about life, nor overly happy. But they're, the, uh, they're fundamentally serious and fundamentally happy both at the same time. And it's a result of a deep doctrine of sin and what's wrong in this world, but a high doctrine of joy in what Jesus has given to us. And that's what produces a happy, blessed person who mourns and is at the same time comforted. Why? Why is mourning a sign of people who are in the grip of, a good, of the good news of Jesus? Daryl Johnson is my preaching professor who writes in his book on the Beatitudes saying there's four benefits of mourning in this way. One is that mourning forgives us permission to grieve. Expressing grief is not a bad thing, unlike what our culture tells us. Secondly, we will not know true comfort unless we grieve. Grief may feel like it kills you, but it does not. In fact, it's trying to suppress grief or to run from grief. That's what kills us. The comfort is not found by insulating your heart from pain, but by opening your heart up and acknowledging the pain is there. Thirdly, living in God's kingdom will involve sorrow. Jesus doesn't promise unbroken happiness, at least in this life. Lastly, sorrow is part of the process by which we grow. C.S. Lewis, the author, writes in The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When we listen to our pain and our sorrow, it's opportunity for God to grow us. And understanding that sin and the fallen world we live in is behind the mourning, all mourning enables us to find true comfort in the living God. At this point, you might be convinced, okay, Andrew, you got me. There may be some beneficial aspects to mourning, but does our comfort come only in knowing the right thing to do? Surely, the good news of belonging in God's kingdom has more to do than just living differently. The beauty of God's kingdom is that Jesus tells us not only how to live as individuals, but gifts us with the ability and the opportunity before we even have the power to do them. That's what this Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes are about. 
when we're in God's kingdom, when we trust Jesus, we have the ability to live in this way. We simply look to the morning one. When we look at Jesus' life, we don't see a person who's fleeting and just fun-loving, moving away from the broken parts of this world. Instead, we see a Jesus who is constantly moved by and constantly moving towards the brokenness around him. When he comes upon the sick, we're often told he is moved with compassion. And that word in Greek is moved from the guts, literally from the depth of his being. And when he comes upon, the, when he mourns the effect of sin in Lazarus, he sees that death has come far too early. Jesus mourns over Jesus, Jerusalem's rejection of him and the resultant judgment upon them for that rejection. Jesus mourns over the nature of sin itself because sin has entered the world and impacted the world in these ways. And Jesus mourns because of God's hatred of sin and its effect on God's creation. And Jesus mourns because sin hurts the heart of God. Humanity has rebelled against, uh, in its arrogance. Jesus is a man of sorrows, one who is intimately know, knowing of what pain and loss are like. We don't only see it in his life and ministry, though. We see it in his death. Before the cross, the burden of going to the cross is so great that he's crying before God the Father and literally sweating blood. And on the cross, he not only carries the burden of his punished body pinned to the wooden cross with nails, straining to breathe and lift himself, but he also carries the burden of all the sin of the world upon himself. But we know that the cross is not the end. Jesus rises again. Death is conquered. Relationship is restored. Creation is beginning to be renewed in the resurrection of Jesus. There is comfort of a new day that has arrived. For those who don't know Christ, where is comfort available? Maybe a brighter tomorrow. Get the right policies in place. Take away government intervention and trust good people to make right decisions to improve their lives. Or maybe you're on the other side. Increase government intervention so that life is more equitable for all, improves the lives for all. But there is no true comfort in the government to solve the selfishness and selfish desires of our human inclination. Maybe we're to be a more tolerant society, they say. But there's no comfort in tolerance. Tolerance leads to shallow platitudes. We should be more tolerant of people who are different, but tolerance is not the answer. Tolerance often leads to shallow platitudes and uniting around the lowest common denominator. Tolerance does not imply sacrificial kindness and goodwill for those who are different from you. Tolerance is not finding other ways to, for, people to flir for others to flourish. Because tolerance doesn't look at our own spiritual poverty and our brokenness and our pride that causes disunity. Apart from a living relationship with God in Christ, we will never be able to say with sincerity, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. When we come to know the face of God in Christ Jesus, we realize that we don't have to turn our eyes from the sad things of this world. We can be moved deeply, but we will not be overcome as we sang. 
pressed but not crushed. But we're not overcome by the brokenness of this world and the complexity of our problems. We don't have to distract ourselves, entertain ourselves, or medicate ourselves out of our sadness. Instead, we can find comfort in Jesus, the morning light. We can confront the sin in our own lives, honestly, areas where we have failed to live up to the best version of ourselves. But we can also confront the sin of the world around us and not be overwhelmed by the brokenness that is very evident. There's this burden of seeing this broken world that causes us to say, Lord, things should not be this way. Humans aren't supposed to treat each other this way. We're not supposed to treat our created world this way. We can groan in our spirits. We can call it for what it is. But we are immediately comforted, not by the change around us, but by knowing that God has promised new creation. Glory is coming. And Jesus will return to make all things new. Sin will be banished. Broken things will be unbroken. The effects of sin will be no more. No more death. No more sickness. No more violence. No more treating people like objects for selfish gain. No more oppression because of someone's skin color or because of where they come from in this world. No more cancer. No more broken things because of what Jesus has done for us and for the world. Some of you caringly uh, reached out to me and when you heard about what happened outside the church building on Wednesday afternoon. I was in fact working on this message when I heard some commotion through the windows and I spun around my desk and looked outside and saw in the corner a large crowd gathered, a bunch of teenagers. I thought, oh, there's a fight going on outside. Maybe let's go outside and see what we can do to help. But as I put on my jacket, ran down the stairs and walked out these doors here, I saw a crowd and cars all stopped around the corner in the middle of the street. People had their phones out and they're screaming and filming. And a distraught mother guiding her child with cheek, uh, blood on her cheeks away from the crowd. Men were grappling with what wasn't just a teenager, but a grown man, mostly undressed, covered in blood. I asked someone, has anyone called the police yet? I said, oh, no, no, that's a good idea. So I popped on the line. And as I'm waiting, like, I couldn't connect, but two policemen on motorcycles just happened to ride, ro roll up to the intersection. I flagged them down and brought them over and said, there's an assault going on. They subdued him, arrested him, and this man is facing some serious charges of assault with intent to kill and first-degree uh, harm of a minor. And as I've re been replaying this scene in my mind over the past few days, I've been mourning. Mourning over this family and what they're going through. I've been mourning for our neighborhood who is reeling and wondering about the safety of our community. Mourning about what's going on, what was going on in the life of, of this man for him to take such drastic actions, and mourning for what he's about to face in the coming years. Mourning over a crowd of 20-something people 
who are using their phones to film the scene rather than call for help. What is it that we can do? Behind all these reasons to mourn, though, is the main reason to mourn. We live in a world that is completely touched by the effects of sin. No matter how well-intentioned we are, no matter what kind of good works we have done, we cannot change that. But someone can, and someone is. Sin has affected every part of our humanity and every corner of God's creation, and that should cause all of us to mourn. But this mourning does not lead to hopelessness and an unrealistic view of the world, but a very real view of the world because of who Jesus is and what he can do for us. In light of Jesus' pronouncement, blessed are those who continue to mourn, for they will be comforted. We don't have to turn our eyes away. We don't have to run. We simply look to Jesus and say, come, Lord Jesus.